musical. Hello and welcome to Writer Mother Monster. I'm your host, Laura Ehrlich, and our guest tonight is Rachel Yoder. Before I introduce Rachel, thank you all for tuning in and please chat with us during the conversation. Your comments will appear in our studio and we'll weave them into our discussion. And if you enjoyed the episode, please consider becoming a patron or patroness to help keep the podcast going. Now I'm excited to introduce Rachel. Rachel Yoder is the author of Night Bitch, her debut novel set for release on July 20th this year, which has also been optioned for film with Amy Adams set to star. She's a graduate of the Iowa Nonfiction Writing Program and also holds an MFA in fiction from the University of Arizona. She is a founding editor of Draft, the Journal of Process, and Rachel grew up in a Mennonite community in the Appalachian foothills of eastern Ohio. She now lives in Iowa City as, sorry, in Iowa City with her husband and seven-year-old son and describes writer motherhood in three words as never enough time. Now, please join me in welcoming Rachel. Hi, Laura. Hi, Rachel. Great <laughs> to see you and congratulations on the soon to be released. I'll hold it up. Night bitch. There she is. Thank you. Look at this. First of all, this beauty. Um, and for anyone who's listening to the audio, um, please go to the beginning of the podcast and look at the cover of this book or just go and purchase it on a bookshelf or wherever books are sold. It's gorgeous. And it's a wonderful book. Thank you. And it just so happens this, um, the image is pulled from a vintage meat ad, which has astonishing, extraordinary messaging about meat um, and how meat is so good for you. (laughs) Very appropriate for the book, right? Yeah, right. Which we're going to get into um, pretty deeply in a few minutes. But first, let's talk about the three words that you chose to describe writer motherhood. Um, Never enough time, which I think resonates probably with most of the people listening. Why those three words? Yeah, I mean, I tried to come up with something a little bit more positive, but um, I mean, it it really has just been motherhood and being an artist has been about the negotiation of time and, you know, what time can I take? What time do I need to give? Um, And I just find my life being scheduled into smaller and smaller bits. So, I mean, that that's sort of the central tension for me, especially with um, a partner who does as the partner in the, in the book work out of town every week. So, um, it's this constant sort of, when are you leaving? When are you coming? When can I leave? When can I come? Um, yeah. So yeah, never enough time, uh, as compared to my two MFAs during which I just spent all my time, all of my single time, um, in my sort of creative space. It's, it was a big change, changeover from that sort of lifestyle. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and your son is seven now. He is. So I'm sure that negotiation with time has changed and morphed throughout the years. It has. And you know what's really funny? I just realized this is 
so my son is very creative in a very different way than I am. He is a builder and um, loves to build Legos and loves to build Minecraft. And my my main negotiation with him now is about time. How much screen time can you have? Like how much podcast listening to podcast time can you have? And it's funny that that I mean, that that now has that tension has now sort of transferred over to his creative life. Maybe I need to think about that a little bit more. But, you know, like I sent him to um, half day nature camp. And this morning he's like, I don't want to go to camp. I don't have enough time. Like I want more time for my projects in my creative space. And I was like, interesting. I've heard that before. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so maybe it's this this like tension that we now share, oddly enough. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if there's ever enough time for creative people. Yeah, that's a great question. Is there ever enough time? It feels like that's probably a central tension for many creative people. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Do you feel like you had enough time during your MFA programs, even though it was a very different type of place and space? Um, I I did. It felt really wide open. Um, I mean, especially during my first MFA when I was really uncomfortable with teaching, Mm-hmm. Um, teaching took up a lot of time and I actually gave up my teachership in my second year because I didn't go to get my MFA to spend all my time teaching or worrying about teaching. Um, yeah, but, but it did feel, and especially when I came to Iowa, I mean, I think there was a really big commitment on the part of the program to give students a lot of time. Um, and the teaching loads weren't that heavy. Um, I was very lucky, grateful for a fellowship that I got. Um, and that was really like my condition for myself of getting a second MFA, which is like sort of a ridiculous, embarrassing thing to do. But I was like, no, if, if I'm going to do this, I'm only going if I get a fellowship. So all my time can be spent on writing. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about the two MFAs. Um, and I don't think it's ridiculous and embarrassing, especially <laughs> considering one of them is from Iowa, which is, of course, incredible. Um, but tell me about the first one about nonfiction and, and where you started and why you started there and then the transition or the, the, um, the movement, I guess, mm-hmm. into fiction at Iowa. So. Yeah. Well, it's actually flipped. So the fiction was first and it was at Arizona. And then I moved into nonfiction at Iowa. Um, I was what I thought was very, I was 25 when I got my MFA, which felt really young. Um, and I hadn't studied creative writing in undergrad. Um, it, it all felt very new to me. I wasn't like familiar with like the literary, literary community. Um, and so when I went into that program at all, everyone else felt a lot smarter than me. You know, they had gotten their undergrad degrees in creative writing and kind of, you know, knew how to talk like writers. And I was like, who are you people? Um, so that just really felt like I was like getting my feet wet. Like I didn't even quite know where I was or what I was doing. Um, and it was only after those two years that I sort of realized, oh, okay, this is what I just did. Um, and this is, this is sort of the world, the literary world. I didn't know about literary journals really before I went there. Um, and, and I had published a modern love essay when I was at University of Arizona. And so that was me, my first sort of dabble into nonfiction. I took a few nonfiction classes when I was there too. 
Um, and all of my, all of my fiction was very autobiographical. It was very autofiction. So I was really interested in, you know, what is nonfiction all about? Should I be an, es- an essay writer? Should I be writing memoirs? Seem too young to re- be writing a memoir, but, um, all of my stories are drawn from my life. So I'm really glad I wound up at Iowa, um, because the focus is so much on the essay and what is an essay. Um, and I feel like my sort of literary repertoire was really expanded at Iowa, looking, looking at a lot of sort of like experimental forms, talking about all the, all the different ways in which you can, um, think about narrative, think about like the narrative of an idea, which was something really new to me and that really sparked my imagination. And then I think in Night Bitch, I really brought like all of that to bear, you know, like before, before I went to Iowa, before I um, got a nonfiction degree, I was really a scared of scared of exposition or any sort of telling um, in stories. Like my stories were very mannered, very stylized, very only showing like sort of mysterious, like what is going on. Um, but when I sat down to write night bitch, I, I knew that there was going to be a lot of just ranting for lack of a better word. And I was a lot more comfortable with that because I knew that there were a lot of ideas that were also going to be part of the story. And I felt more comfortable using that mode um, as well as all the sort of tools and tricks I knew from um, writing short stories. Yeah. Talk us through Night Bitch a little bit for anyone who doesn't know what it's about. Give us the elevator pitch. And sure. then, um, yeah. Yeah. So Night Bitch is about, is about an ambitious artist turned reluctant stay at home mom who becomes convinced she's turning into a dog. Um, it's looking at issues of, um, rage and power and ambition and motherhood. And it's, um, really just sort of challenging a lot of what we've been given, a lot of messages that we've been given about what motherhood is and what it should be and what womanhood is um, through this story of a mom dog, a were mom, or is she is also, you know, in question in the book. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all of those themes resonated with me so much. Um, and I'm sure will with readers as well, but um yeah, so <laughs> nowhere to go from there. Yeah, it's an amazing book um, and premise and um, ranting. I think you're right. It's it's has a negative connotation, right, to rant, but in the best possible way. Um, I see what you mean in in this book. Um, and the rage really comes through. Talk to me about rage. Yeah, I was um, really angry in early motherhood, and I never was given any tools for dealing with anger. I, it, it felt really uncomfortable. I didn't know how to express it. I felt guilty for being angry. Um, I mean, I come from a Mennonite background and anger is right next to violence and, you know, Mennonites are pacifists and um, yeah. So, so my instinct is to just never express anger and to just, mm-hmm deal with it on the inside, but that wasn't working for me in early motherhood. It was, 
it was, it was, you know, like rage can really destroy you if you let it. And so the book was me trying to like negotiate that rage and, and, and figure out how to deal with it. Um, and, and I think that's, I get, that's probably something a lot of women, um, struggle with, like how to be angry. You know, you don't want to be the angry woman. Um, and people just stop listening to you, which has been my experience. When you get angry, you become, you lose all your credibility. So in this book, I wanted her to be so angry that you couldn't look away. Like you had to listen. Um, and to, and to show that she was being completely logical and completely credible, like despite her anger, that felt really important for me. Yeah, completely credible and logical in the most um, illogical of premises, kind of. Yeah, which is a, an amazing balance to strike. But I also feel like there, something felt very logical, even about the absurd premise to me. And I just, I didn't interrogate it too much. I just like ran with it for lack of, you know, no pun intended. Um, but there was something that felt, felt, felt deeply right about like her turning into an animal. Um, and so, so that became something very interesting to explore. It's kind of like, what is this all about? Let's like see how it plays out over the course of this book. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally, I understand that and I love that. Um, it's interesting. So, uh, a draft of a book that I just finished, I started writing with the, um, with the word rage in mind. And it was an emotion that I wanted to tap into. And then the story was kind of secondary. It was like the rage was driving the, the, um, the characters and the plot. And it sounds like you are saying something similar here did the rage come first and then the story um was crafted around the rage or how did how did that come to be oh yeah the rage came first um I mean you have to remember I was writing this deep you know during the Trump um presidency Mm -hmm. um I started it soon after he was elected and just the the sort of helplessness and rage I felt on election night Mm-hmm. I, you know, sitting there after it was called and being like, I, I have known this man, like I have met this man so many times and I have felt small and foolish in his presence. And, and that was the, that was the night it really began. It kind of like cracked everything open for me um, because it seemed like something <laughs> Something must be done, like in the face of what had just happened. Um, but I think too, I was, you know, this was also a big, you know, having my son and then um, deciding to quit working and, and stay home with him was a big transition out of like sort of my girlhood into my womanhood and a very rocky one at that. And it was me having to learn how to own my rage, you know, like, own own my power own my womanhood and I didn't know how to do that so so yeah I mean the rage the rage came first and 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 the book is wasn't very very many ways like a catharsis you know like I had to figure out how to work through it um and the rage was very inarticulate for a long time yeah yeah Mm -hmm. yeah um 
wow, there's so many directions I want to take this. But, <laughs> but what made you angry? So obviously the, the election, which I am right there with you, my daughter was not even one, I think. And here was this result that would shape her, her childhood for at least four years yeah. of her life, which is um, devastating. But so that is a very tangible rage. What else made you angry in early motherhood? Well, I was never the kind of girl who fantasized about getting married or fantasized about becoming a mom. My fantasy was about moving to New York City, working in a high rise, wearing high heeled shoes, ordering takeout. I mean, from a very early age, um, I wanted to have a big, you know, juicy great life and that and I really saw like that centering on my career um so you know my vision for what my motherhood would look like with my husband was that you know we would both work in town we'd have we'd both come home at five o'clock it would be very equal undertaking um I would be able to be fulfilled in my career um, I would be able to kind of keep all these parts of me that were really important. I'd be able to write here and there. And just because of, you know, the, the specific logistics of our lives, that is not at all what wound up happening. And I, I also should add that after my son was born, I also like lost my desire sort of to want to work, you know, like, um, well, while I did still want to, it became a lot easier to be like, to see how stepping out would happen. Um, and I was so deeply in love with my baby the first year, you know, and just like the, the oxytocin was like doing its magic. I was high all the time on like my baby, um, my baby hormones. So it felt so actually like for the first nine or 10 months of his life, I did work. He was at daycare for 40 hours a week and it's, and I was in agony. Like I was like, is this what is this what modern motherhood is? You like see your baby from five to eight or, you know, like whenever he falls asleep or maybe he has been awake at daycare all day. And as soon as you get him, he falls asleep and you never see him awake. Mm -hmm. And that felt like a tragedy to me. Like, I don't want this to be my motherhood. So then, okay. So then I'll quit my job. Well, we won't have any money. We'll make do with one career. Um, and, and that's what happened. I think this is supposed to be, I'm supposed to be talking about rage. Is that correct? Okay. Keep going. So, <laughs> so I find myself at home with him and it's great for a while. Like it's all I want. I want to go to the park with my baby. I want to, you know, hold him every time he falls asleep. I want to nurse him to sleep. I want to, I mean, it was, it was great. And I was so grateful that I could do that. But after a time, you know, by the time he got to be like two or three, I sort of came to from this fugue, this baby fugue, and was like, what have I done? You know, like, I'm 38. I have stepped out of the workforce. I have not written for two years. My husband is never here. I don't have any friends. And I have a ba I have a toddler. And suddenly it felt like the trap that I had always I had been working my whole life to avoid. Marriage always felt like a trap to me, like motherhood felt like a trap. 
And I was like, how did I get here? Like, despite my two MFAs, despite my this and that and the other thing and like all this ambition I had, how am I still here? Like, despite my great partner, despite like this great community I live in. Um, and that's when it really, the ball really started rolling because I just started thinking and I'm like, well, of course, like this is how it's all set up. And I think that's where, you know, the rants began. Um, and I knew that there were, if, if this had happened to me, then certainly it had happened to so many other women. And how do we like escape that story? Mm-hmm. Um, how do we write another story? It seems almost impossible. Um, yeah. And so because of all of that, that's like where the rage came from. And, and it also came out of the rage came out of desperation and isolation too. Just like this huge, like feeling of being so alone. Like who can I turn to? Um, we didn't have, we don't have family in town. All of my like grad school friends had just moved away. And I was like, where's my pack? Where's my community? Um, how do you, find a community nowadays if you're not part of a church or, you know, some other established thing. Um, and these just all felt like really insurmountable questions to me. And I, and I couldn't figure them out. I couldn't figure them out. Yeah. 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 Um, did writing the book help? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it did on many levels, right? Because, I went back to writing. So um, I think that was if I could do one thing differently, even though I didn't want to write and I thought I didn't have anything to write in the first two years that my son was alive, I would have made myself write. I find time to write every day, um, not like dirt while he napped, but being like, no, I need to pay someone for two hours a day to come so I can go do this. Um, I think that would have been incredibly helpful for me to move through it, but I didn't know that. So, um, yeah, I mean, the book was me writing the story I needed to read. It was, it was, you know, putting, putting these characters that were very similar to me and my husband and my son in a very similar situation. Um, well, except I didn't think I was turning into a dog. So throwing that into the mix. <laughs> And seeing, okay, well, how can we, how can we use these characters or sort of embodiments of ideas and, you know, move them through time and space to some sort of resolution? Um, the structure of story is what I turn to, to, to find some resolution. It's such a good structure. It's such a good engine. And, has been that's what I've done for it for the last 20 years I mean the reason I started writing was because I was in deep crisis you know like I had left my family I'd left my Mennonite community I had a huge cataclysmic break in my life and I didn't I was just this girl like alone in Arizona with again with no pack without her pack and so that was when I first started writing because writing has this promise of resolution if you like do it enough right um and resolution not in the sense that you've figured something out but resolution in that you've moved through something you know you've moved to a different place 
And that is very much what I want, needed to do when I started writing this. I was in a place of rage. Um, I was in a place where I thought I was helpless and powerless. And I know, I knew I needed to move somewhere different. So how do I do that through the, through the use of story? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Let's go back for a second to, uh, if I can remember my thought, because I was so enthralled by what you were saying. Um, oh yes. Okay. So, um, your point that, that had you known you would have hired someone to come and give you those two hours a day or whatever it would be, um, for anyone listening who hasn't thought to do that, why is that an important thing to do? Well, I just, I was actually talking to my best friend about this last night and, um, she told me this anecdote, which I thought was so great. So she, she was a long distance runner before she had her three kids and before she had her baby, she was wise enough. She turned to her husband. She said, I am never going to stop running, never going to stop running. I want you to know that. And she said that because she knew it was the part of her that like, that like made her her, you know, like it's what made her feel alive. It's like what fulfilled her in a very deep, soulful way. Um, and so as soon as her son was born, a few weeks after she gave the baby to her husband and said, I'm going for a run now, probably not fully wanting to go for a run, but went for a run on the run. He called her. The baby's crying. She's like, Welcome to fatherhood. I'm going to finish my run, like figure it out, you know? Um, and that, I mean, that blew my mind because I'm like, yes, of course. It's, it's not only that you're doing something for yourself. Um, that's not just like superficial self care. That's something that you've identified something that is like important to who you are, but you're also setting an, up a dynamic with your partner about how this is going to go, you are, um, you are setting up a way in which your like core self should be treated. You're saying, I know I'm going to cherish my core self. I'm going to cherish like the, the part of me that makes me me. And it's really important for me not to lose that. So, so just as a sort of, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like as a, it's like a ritual that you're you're setting up and a way of relating with that core self that is really important. And so I think again, like even if I had hired someone with money we didn't have to come for two hours and then I went to the coffee shop and like ate a cookie and just sat there, I still should have done that um, because that was that would have been me like taking care of myself in the way I needed to and like giving respecting who I was and, um, and valuing myself properly. Yeah. 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 And I know self-care is something you wanted to talk about specifically um, during this conversation. Let's talk more about self-care and um, tell me what the word kind of means in our culture and then what it means to you. Yeah, I mean, I get this look on my face when you say, tell me what it means in our culture, because it feels so um, superficial and Mm -hmm. corrupt at this point. You know, the commodification of self-care, it feels like a business. And whenever whenever anything turns into a business, it it feels like it's far away from its original intent to me. Um, 
Yeah. And so, again, I was talking to my best friend about this, how real self-care it requires you getting to know yourself, right? And you getting quiet and still with yourself and and figuring out what you need and what you want and what needs aren't being met. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, yeah, I, I think there's this trap um, that you can fall into of just like, oh, yeah, this superficial self-care and I should, you know, I went and like got a facial and I da 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 and I should be, fe- I, sh- I should be feeling great now. And I mean, maybe, maybe those are your forms of deep self-care. I mean, it's different for everyone, but um, I think the real self-care comes in like taking care of your, I mean, obviously taking care of your internal self. Like that's what we're really going for here. And, 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 coming into a better relationship with yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. What's your form of self-care? What do you do? What do I do? I mean, writing is a huge form of self-care mm-hmm. for me. I've discovered because whenever I'm not writing and my husband actually has seen this, you know, sooner than I do, he's like, you're a mess. Like, do you need to write? And it's like, yeah, I actually do because I, it's my way of being still and quiet and going somewhere that feels really sacred and working from there, which is what I need. Um, I've also found that gardening is a form of self care, like touching the earth and, and, and being in relationship with um, the, these like amazing things that are alive and are so weird and have so much like vitality and personality. I mean, there's so many person, I'm looking out at my flowers right now. There's so many personalities out there. Um, and like they all have something to say. So, so yeah, I find, and I, I've also recently gotten into somatic therapy. I've started working with a somatic therapist who, you know, and I, I ask her about, what can I do when I'm feeling really anxious? She'll say stuff like, you could drink a glass of water or you could look out a window at something very far away. And I'm like, you're insane. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, but, but really it's like what she's getting at is how, how can I like, you know, become more a part of my surroundings how can I become more aware of my body as a thing in this you know incredible system that's all around me um yeah so self-care for me has has a huge part of it this past year has been um understanding how to communicate and listen to my body um which I think it it's another thing so many women are estranged from their bodies and mm-hmm. from the sensations um, of their bodies, which has that's kind of been a mind blowing thing for me, too. And I think Night Bitch has a lot to do about being in communication with the sensations of your bodies. Um, that has been some real self-care for me, too. Like, yeah, negotiating my relationship with my body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I feel the same way, actually. And I've heard that from a lot of women on the show um, that that um, 
sense of disconnect from our bodies and how somehow motherhood, well, actually in lots of ways, motherhood brings you back into your body, right? Through pregnancy and then through nourishing your child with your body and even women who, um, who don't give birth and who don't breastfeed still come back to their bodies in a very, um, uh, vital way. Mm. Was that your experience with motherhood too? Did motherhood bring you back to your body? That's a great question. I mean, I loved being pregnant. I loved all the sensations of pregnancy. Um, I loved, this sounds totally crazy. I love giving birth, which is, a. I mean, that's obviously a a mom who gave birth seven years ago saying that. Um, Did it bring me back to my body? Uh, Yes. Yes. I think, I think it, it made me understand my body had a lot more potential than I thought it did. And therefore I had a lot more potential than I thought I did um, in terms of strength and uh, resiliency and doing something really hard. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I also struggle. It's, it's interesting. I mean, my, that has been a big piece of my relationship with my body. I've also have some autoimmune stuff and um, incredible pain in my body, mm-hmm. which has been something that I'm also negotiating. And I think um, was part of the sort of horror of the body horror in night bitch is like a body that seems to be like out of sync with you that you're out of sync with or a body that's like, at odds with you. Um, and I'm, I'm really interested in, in that tension and, and what stories that has to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Let's stick with that for a second and talk about transformation and women's bodies and um, that out of sync feeling. Can you just go deeper there. That's so fascinating. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what was interesting to me about Night Bitch is that it is this, I mean, it is this narrative of her being, like, literally at odds with her own body. Like, like as it, like, there's um, another animal in there that she's sort of warring with. Um, but also the fact that her body, on a literal, physical level, is expressing things that she cannot express. Like in her silence, in her inability to take action, she be in her internalized repressed rage, she begins her body begins to change because it's like, I, I'm not going to wait for you, you know, like catch up. Like this is where we're going. Come on. You're, and you're coming along whether you like it or not. Um, and so at first she kind of resists her body trying to say this she resists it but 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 then she as she figures out how to negotiate it how to wrangle it she sees that it's saying something very important and it's it's crucial to her trans to her coming into her own power to her transforming into this artist and woman and mother that she always wanted to be mm-hmm. um and so it it just really seems like we can't we can't go there there without our bodies like we have to bring our bodies along um and i think i mean i think this has something to say too about like 
you know, I get, I've, I've recently gotten Botox in my face and I'm like, can I do that? Like, can I do this and be the person I want to be? Like, is there any way to get Botox in my face that doesn't reinforce the message message? I am flawed. Is there any way to do it? I don't know if there is. And so I'm, I'm feeling it out. It doesn't mean like I'm not ever going to get Botox again, but it means like that's an open question right now that I'm negotiating and more will be revealed. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I do think we can't, for me, for me that, you know, for lots of people, there's this thought that like the mind and the body are separate and we can do one thing in one place and it won't affect the other place. And it's just become incredibly clear to me that, we're this one unified animal and I'm, I'm just really interested in the ways that, you know, those, all those parts of us are working together because I think they constantly are and they're constantly telling us things, whether we hear it or not. Yeah. Well said. Um, I think this is a good transition to maybe sharing a little bit of Night Bitch, if you'd like to read to us. Sure. I can read just a little bit of the beginning um, and give you a little taste. Uh, and this is the first time I'm reading from a finished copy here. So thank you for the opportunity to do this. It's really exciting. Okay. So this is just from the very beginning of the book. When she had referred to herself as night bitch, she meant it as a good-natured, self-deprecating joke, because that's the sort of lady she was, a good sport, able to poke fun at herself, definitely not uptight, not wound really tight, not so freakishly tight, that she couldn't see the humor in a light-hearted, not-meant-as-an-insult situation. But in the days following this new naming, she found the patch of coarse black hair sprouting from the base of her neck, and was like, what the fuck? I think I'm turning into a dog, she said to her husband when he arrived home after a week away for work. He laughed and she didn't. She had hoped he wouldn't laugh. She had hoped that week as she lay in bed, wondering if she was turning into a dog, that when she said those words to her husband, he would tip his head to one side and ask for clarification. She had hoped he would take her concerns seriously. But as soon as she said the words, she saw this was impossible. Seriously, she insisted, I have this weird hair on my neck. She lifted her normal hair to show him the black patch. He rubbed it with his fingers and said, yeah, you're definitely a dog. <laughs> That's their relationship in a nutshell. <laughs> Thank you for reading. And I'm honored to be the first place to read from the real book. Um, Yeah, so... Let's just talk on a craft level for a second about that opening and about how effectively and beautifully you set up the entire rest of the book with those first few paragraphs in such a matter of fact way, too, that here's what's happening to this woman. She accepts it um, as, you know, a, a matter of course, even if she's going to rebel against it. Um, yeah, and just how how um, efficiently also you do that in the first page. So talk about that a little Well, bit. thanks. Um, I mean, I think, yeah, there is a lot going on there. I think um, what what when I just read it now, I was like, oh, what's so evident from page one is not is like her own internal gaslighting, like her own internal 
doubting of what's happening. And um, then that's like reinforced by her husband, you know, like, oh, you're being silly again. And yeah, you're totally turning into a dog. Um, that's a dynamic that I think we can probably, a lot of us can relate to, you know, where you kind of like, don't take yourself seriously because, because of many, for many reasons. Um, but I think that's one of, you know, that's, that's also a really big tension in the book is her just like not taking, not knowing whether what she's thinking is like worth being taken seriously. Mm -hmm. Um, and she and like her getting to a point where she's like, no, no, it must be like, yeah, this is ser- what I'm saying. It must be heard. Um, yeah. And it starts off, I mean, as a joke, right? Like she's not she doesn't want to be she doesn't want to be like a she wants to be like a cool girl, like who can take a joke. She can take a joke like she's not a tight, um, which is that's like a vibe I definitely relate to and have related to to throughout my life of like not wanting to be confrontational, not wanting to be uptight, uptight about feminist stuff. Um, and I think just now in, in midlife, I'm like, no, like it's bullshit. It's all, it's bullshit. And it, and it's, it's all designed to make us feel bad about standing up for ourselves, to make us feel bad about being angry, to make us feel bad about hurting a man's feelings or confronting a man. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's so insidious. And I feel like all of that is sort of swirling on this first page. Um, and I think it, I think it sort of swirls between the wife and husband in the book. Uh, and that was a really interesting dynamic to write because I didn't want to, I don't think he's a bad guy and I didn't want to make him like a bad guy character. Um, but I did want to show that they were both part of this pretty insidious dynamic that um, was really unconscious, I think, to both of them until Nightbitch kind of gets to a point where she realizes, like, um, the power is is within her grasp to, to sort of transform their dynamic. Yeah. 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 And actually, you just touched on this, too, but the power of naming, too, that she claims this name for herself and it has the word bitch in it, which, mm-hmm. you know, claiming away from those who use it in a disparaging term against women who are angry or women who are speak out. Um, there's just so much power in the book, of course, generally, but in that first page plus it's yeah, you really start off with a bang. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and isn't it interesting, too, that, like, bitch, bitch is a word, like, given to women by men. Because mm-hmm. I feel like if, like, if someone's a bitch, like, I want to be their friend. You know what I mean? Like, that's a A-plus in my book. Like, I want to know what's going on with you. Um, yeah, so it's just this very, obviously, like, gendered slur that, yeah. I, I wanted, I, I did think about that, like. Should I even take it back? Do I even want to take it back? But I think I think it works in the context of the book. Yeah, this is such a technical question. But was the book always called Night Bitch? It was. I mean, it had the title was the very first thing. Yeah. Um, and there were, you know, I did talk to some editors who were who were like, if we publish this, we can't call it keep it Night Bitch. And I'm like, ah, that might be a, a deal breaker for me. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, I just felt like that's what it had to be. Yeah. I mean, I'm going to hold this up again because it's just that amazing. Okay. I mean, if you see this on a shelf, <laughs> you're going to pick this up, right? It's meat and the word night badges. <laughs> it's also, like, a totally absurd, which I hope yeah. people, like, there. it is very angry, but there's also, I mean, that had to be leavened with, right. you know, the humor. And so... It's, it was also just really fun to write because I could be utterly absurd and just play around. Um, oh, and my chickens are out here in the front yard, so I'll have oh to get them to show that. much kinship with you. I'm desperate for chickens. I know from growing up, and I really want chickens again. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. They're, well, yeah. They, they have their pros and cons, for sure. sure. I'm sure you know if you had them when you were young. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that chickens. So we haven't had chickens join the show before. We've had like a dog <laughs> and children, but this might be the first chicken. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're very excited that they've escaped. So they oh. should be fine. Okay. <laughs> um, oh yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, about the book, um, um, on just a publishing level. Tell us a little bit of the story about publishing Night Bitch and about, um, what's next for it because you have some, exciting um next steps for the book yeah so um the deal happened right before we all shut down for covid last year um really quickly it's kind of like i i found my dream editor like she saw it and she knew and she was like yes us we're doing it and i was like okay yes let's do it so it's been a joy to work with her um her name is margot schickmanter and she works at double day um Yeah. And so we did, we did some editing during the pandemic. It wasn't, it wasn't a really like in-depth, um, editing. It was, it was kind of adding a little bit more to the MLM mommy narrative and, um, building that out, um, fiddling with the middle backstory part, which was always like a little problematic and hopefully works now. Um, yeah, and then just like fine tuning language in some areas. So, so that, that, that went really smoothly. It was like a joy to work with. Her. It was a, a joy to work with her. And it should be noted that everyone, every single person who I have worked with on this book and with the film, which we'll talk about, has been a woman. Every single person, which I find astonishing. I feel so lucky. Um, yeah, and it just kind of hit me the other day, especially for film stuff. Like, you don't get to work with women um, uh, for film stuff, but, like, the executive who I'm working with, the producers, um, everyone are women. So so soon after the book was sold, some sort of magic happened, and everyone in Hollywood had the manuscript. I still have to get clear with um, my agent on how exactly this happened, but um, – I also kind of, I got hooked up with a, um, a film agent and she's like, okay, we're going to sell it. And she did her thing. And, um, during the pandemic, I was like taking calls with producers and, um, with Amy Adams. And, uh, it was a, a, a pretty long process, but it was also really interesting because you would have calls with these producers and they just wanted to like talk about your work and talk about the story, which was really fun and gratifying. And they like asked you questions about it. Um, 
So yeah, it was great. So eventually I think about, it took about six months to get a contract and, um, yeah, everything kind of, uh, paused at that point, you know, Hollywood was shut down, but, but now, um, let's see, we're in July again. How is it July again? Uh, <laughs> it seems there's, there's been some movement and hopefully there will be an announcement soon, but things are moving forward in a really positive way um, with people who who just like really are vibing with night bitch I think you know so many moms and women are vibing with night bitch and um, so I'm just really yeah excited to see what someone else does with the story because I was telling you before we got on it feels like something that is like no longer mine um, and I think on July 20th, it's really not going to feel like mine. It's going to feel like this thing that is um, doing something out in the world. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. July 20th. So just a couple of weeks um, and then the book will be on shelves. People can pre-order it, we should say. Right. So go out, pre-order the book. That always helps authors um, immensely. So everyone go buy it. Um, <laughs> so I want to be respectful too, because you said there are some things that you didn't, um, that you are not able to talk about yet when it comes to the film. Um, but can you tell me about any of the calls that you had? Can you tell me about talking to Amy Adams and what that conversation was like? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, it was, it was funny because my son was home and so I had my son um, and I got the time zones wrong. So um, I had just gotten out of the shower and my phone rang. I was like literally in a towel. And she's like, hi, it's Amy. And I'm like, um, I got, I was like, I'm sorry, I got the time wrong. Let me put on a movie. I mean, it was like, she was very sweet. Um, but after that, yeah, I mean, it was just like a really, she's really smart and, and a very personable conversation. And, um, it's pretty amazing to be able to ask, you know, like what scenes resonated with you the most and, um, uh, what was it about the book that, that captured your imagination or your interest? And, and she, she said she was really interested in the feral rage of the book, like for an actor. Um, and especially I think for Amy Adams, who I, I think she's been taking edgier roles of late, but still like, I don't know if I've ever seen like completely unhinged Amy Adams. Mm -hmm. And I think that's probably an exciting um, prospect for her to like go into this new territory. And I think, um, yeah, it, in the right hands, it can be something that's that's really singular and funny, but also um, but also kind of like deeply earnest and serious. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it was it was completely surreal. I mean, she said she really liked um, the script from Arrival because at the beginning of it, she had no idea how it was going to end. And, you know, like as she, she likes things that are really surprising. I mean, she had a very, you know, sophisticated aesthetic sensibility, which I was like, yes, yes, thank you. This is, this is what I want to. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, it, it was wonderful and it's, it's been, yeah, just wonderful working with everyone who I've worked with so far. And, and, feeling like, you know, what I wrote is being respected and being understood 
and being handled in a way where that's going to do it justice. Yeah. By yeah. women. By women, it should be oh. done. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, I think that um, the themes and the ferocious energy of the book really resonate, especially now. Right. (laughs) It feels like an upswelling of rage among women. Um, Well, it's not even that there feels there is an Uh upswelling of rage among women that you've really tapped into, I think. So it's the right time and place um, for this book, I think. Yeah, I hope so. And I hope that it can, I hope that women will be able to read it and say, oh, this is what I can do with my rage. Or it'll give them a way to think about how rage can be generative and propulsive and can, and creative, um, and can actually serve you very, very well if you, you know, know how to like come into relationship with it instead of like trying to repress it or push it away like inviting it in, inviting the beast in and asking it, what is up? Like, what's up? What do you want? Um, that is what I hope women do. They like come into closer relationship with their rage from this book. Oh yeah. Let's talk about that a little bit more and about, so this goes back, I think to something you said early on that, um, with your upbringing, you know, rage is something you hold at bay, right? And you don't. And I think that's something, whether you grew up in as a Mennonite or not, <laughs> women are taught, um, whether it's conscious or subconscious, to hold your rage at bay. You're not supposed to be angry. Um, you're not supposed to be a bitch. You're not mm-hmm. supposed to um, argue, mm-hmm. right? And so can we talk a little bit more about um, your grappling with that complexity and where you've come out the other end. And so you say you want women to invite the beast in. What can it do for you? What can the invitation result in? Yeah. I mean, I think rage is a piece of self-care for me. You know, like I feel so guilty sometimes, um, going and getting a hotel room for the weekend after my husband's been gone and being like, peace, bye. You're with the kid on your own. Like, and the way I get through that is no, like you summon the beast. You're like, no, like here's your ambition. Here is night bitch. Like night bitch needs to fucking go and get room service. And I'm no one talk to her or touch her for two days, you know, like, like let's, let's get serious. I mean, and there are lots of different ways of talking about it. It could be like rage. It could be like your fierce mother, like bringing your like fierce mother energy to yourself, to your own caretaking. Um, yeah, I mean, I just think rage can be so it's been so propulsive for me. I mean, it created a book where I was like, I haven't written in two years. I am a writer. I am going to write a fucking book now. And I, and it, it just like gave me focus. Like, this is what I'm doing. There's no negotiating my way out of it. Here we go. Here we go. Like, if you feel guilty, cool. We're going to do it anyway. Like, if you feel like you, you're abandoning your family, cool. We're going to do it anyway. Like, the rage is really at like all of the other voices who are, who would have me be otherwise, who would have me act otherwise. And that is power, right? To have a, have a fierceness that you can bring to all of this, all of this other stuff around you. 
And that has been really helpful for me to, to focus my rage in those ways and to use it to protect myself, to protect my time, to protect, you know, the thing that makes me me. Um, I, and I, and I have to do it every day. It's a constant negotiation, a constant like way of coming, like taking it. You can see it like how I'm sitting. You take the rage and you like put it in like your chest and like that's how you activate it. You know, you can take the rage and you can put it in your guts and it'll like, mm, it'll, like eat you alive. Right. Um, you can hold it in different parts of your body. Yeah, I'm just like, this is what's always going on in my head, right? These days, I don't know, pandemic, too much time to myself. But, um, but yeah, that's how I think about it. Like, where is it in my body? How does it feel? Like, where does it feel when I'm holding it as like, um, when it's harming myself, when I feel sick with rage? Like, where is it then? How can I like become more comfortable? Like, what are the, can I drink a glass of water? Can I look at a tree far away? Um, yeah, all of this work, like all of my work on myself, all of my work with my like physical ailments, all of my art, it all just really feels like it's converging now. Like that's what this book was. There's just like a convergence of all of these different relationships and negotiations and problems and trying to to find how that all comes together in this story um, and can, and can be like a story that's hopeful in the end, like not everything's resolved, but, but she's, she's, she's headed there, right? She's headed, she's found, she's found a first stage on which to sort of perform the self. Um, and we can be hopeful that like, she's now like on the right path. Thank you, Rachel. I think that's like the best, the best ending right there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, this has just been such a pleasure. I'd like to talk to you every day. I feel so like, energized now with rage or ferocity or whatever. <laughs> I'm always here, so call a new sign. Thank you. Stick around for a second after I'll say goodbye. But um. But it's been such a pleasure, everyone. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Laura. It's been a pleasure. And thank you all for joining us. Um, stay tuned for the next episode in another week and a half or so. Um, go out and get your own copy of Night Bitch. And um, I will see you all next time. Thank you and good night.